The OAM Network is an independently run podcast and live production company in Memphis, Tennessee. TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. Welcome to this episode of Something to Say. I'm Sky with my friend Johnny. Say hi, Johnny. Hi, Johnny. Along with Gil, our producer and adult in the room. And this is an ongoing place of conversation between friends of 40 years, along with guests who may join us from time to time. We are both Methodist preachers, one of us retired, one of us still active, talking about things that matter to us and how folks who are in the clergy or caregiving callings and professions wrestle with these things that matter. Sometimes we'll be silly, sometimes serious, sometimes a little raw, but hopefully open up some things that help us or help all of us navigate these rough waters that uh, we find ourselves in from time to time. Speaking of raw, let me just say this. Um, I am aware I had this my in advance of the first episode dropping you had posted something about it on Facebook. I don't have the Facebook anymore, but my father surely does. So he sent me this message that he knew that we were going to have this podcast and that it ought to be interesting. And my only response to him was, Dad, I cuss in it. Don't be alarmed. <laughs> so um, that's... You did cuss in it. I did, and I may not yet be done. And I'll just say to folks who've known me across the years, if that's offensive... I'm sorry. Move on. I'm I'm trying to be real with who I am in this moment, and the effort is not to be gratuitous, but true to who I am in a given moment. So, with that disclaimer, Scott, we'll uh, have conversations again. They'll be silly, serious, and raw. So uh, that's uh, that's a good way to go forward. And falling under silly, serious, and raw, I know that. Uh, you, my friend and colleague, have retired, and there are lots of things that led to that, and uh, maybe this is a good time to share some of those things and uh, how that came about, uh, history, uh, reality, the present, and uh, what goes on in the future. So uh, how did all that get started? You know, it's a story of some curiosity with some of some folks I know that that at one point I was fairly high up in leadership in the conference and just within months basically disappeared. And I, for those who have a, a curiosity born of concern for me, that's the the reason that I, I wanted to talk to about some of this. For those who have curiosity because they're voyeuristic, then I, I don't really care if you hear this or not. But there are plenty of folks who I've worked with over the years who I've cared about, with whom I've collaborated meaningfully and appreciated very much the relationship with my clergy colleagues that we have with each other. Because for those of you who are Methodists uh, and if you're clergy, you know we are each other's congregation. That's what we got. And I got to the place where I couldn't stay in mine anymore. And I'll, I'll speak to some of that. I'm, I'm not going to speak to the whole of it. I want to be protective appropriately and hold some dignity for some of this that is not completely mine to share. 
but I will speak to the parts that I think can be shared. And if I say too much, we'll edit it out before you ever hear it. So that's how we'll go. So here, here's where I'll just start. And I hope you'll understand that some of this comes now through the reflective lens of two and a half years plus of therapy, things that I didn't have the capacity to say or understand about myself. What I know about myself now is that I am a recovering codependent, that I have let that untreated lack of sobriety in my codependency determine really the the trajectory of my life. Relationships, career, work, all of that together, there's some level to which my codependency has been a part, if not a driver. I'm not alone in that. I think that a number of we who are clergy, be we active or retired, or used to be clergy, carry with us a level of codependency and caretaking Absolutely. that is easily mistaken as a gift. The inability to to live into your own truth because of concern for what others might think or say, the inability to take care of yourself because you give yourself the totality of your energy to take care or caretake someone else if they doesn't matter if they asked for it or not. And in the church, it's perfect because the church in general it will be glad to take every bit of energy you give it and think that that's how it's supposed to be. And, and pat you on the back. Pat you on the back for it, and then you come up with nothing. So that caveat as a start is that I, I know that now that that's been – and I guess along my years, I had some recognition that that there was that tendency in me. I suffered even further from the sense that uh, I can take care of it, I can manage it, I can – keep it in check, uh, or I can use it actually to an asset, which all the more for those who are in recovery of any kind, you know uh, how stupid that is. And that doesn't work. That's the, uh, that's the addiction. That's the, that's the problem guiding you rather than other way around. Things began to really accrue from a stress and pressure standpoint for me first identified in a pretty profound way around 2012 with some realizations about me, what all that might mean. I didn't have any real imagination for what to do about it, but I realized that I had reached a point of uh, something was going to have to give, and quite literally at the time I thought, or I'm not going to live. It was at the same time, though, that that year was when I was elected by my colleagues to be chair of the Board of Ordained Ministry, that I was honored to have been elected by my peers, and that was work that I really wanted to do and do well. It was it was work that I felt I could bring some level of contribution to for the sake of the whole that would be helpful going forward. 
it was also at a time where we had received a new bishop who wanted us to bring our focus into aligning the processes of our conference and our sister conference east of the uh, Tennessee River. And so that was uh, marching orders that into which there was much energy given and focused work and to bring all in lots of travel. So that travel, which I enjoyed in some levels, was also a way to stay away from the uh, the difficulties I was having in myself. With well, let me ask this, and and for folks listening, that's an elected position. You were elected by your peers, uh, by by our peers. Uh, did that contribute? You think later to the uh, the uh, the problems of uh, sometimes fooling yourself, thinking you're more than what you are. No, I don't. I don't think so. Uh, I could bring some time and thought to that. At the time, it was a, a moment where I felt like, all right, I've 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 worked a long time. I've been on a lot of committees. I'd been on the board of ministry for a long time. That this was one opportunity to. To lead in, mm-hmm. in a capacity that I had not yet ever been given that opportunity. So I, I felt like it was a, a next step that was afforded me that I was grateful to have. I wanted to do well. I wanted to be helpful to the bishop. I wanted to lead that committee that I'd been a part of for quite a few years before I was elected chair to see having had having it work particular ways if there was something I could do with it that would make help it to adapt to new realities within the church. I think that's good to hear because we have seen folks uh, cross the connection that that kind of seemed like they'd arrived that was an I've arrived moment and for you I, I don't think that was the case. I mean I watched you do it. Uh but uh still quite an honor and uh Again, it's not something you uh, got appointed to do. You got elected to do it. I did, and I I served in that capacity for six years, which is a long time to be chair. And I, it toward the end of that run, coupled with all the other things that were happening internally, it was clearly time to get out. I remembered feeling, both in my appointment at St. John's and then with my work at the conference level, whether or not it was real or imagined, I, I believe that I was in the way. In fact, I think I said that a few times. I need to get out of the way. You know, a middle-aged, straight, white guy serving a church that espouses and works toward justice issues needs to be led by someone who doesn't look like me. Uh, the same could be said for the the board that I led, that it needed to be led by someone else. Not that I couldn't do it anymore, although I didn't have any more energy really for it. But for the changes that we were all hoping for, I needed to get out of the way. And I, whether or not that's, that feeling is uh, reflected in the sentiments of others, I know that I felt it myself. So that was part of the impetus to leave when I did. 
Well, don't sell yourself short. You did good work. Well, I'm I'm grateful for the work that we were able to accomplish, and that that body has a chair, but it is a body of people who do extraordinarily hard things when they are necessary, and we did not shrink from doing the hard thing when it was necessary. One thing I did discover in that work is that I come to learn more about my colleagues than I want to know sometimes. Boy, isn't that the truth? And you certainly would know that about being a superintendent. But you come to hold that as um, a sacred trust that is held and must be held for uh, all kinds of reasons. And it's a tough place to be because it's not only is it a sacred trust that you're honored to keep, but boy, there's a side of you. I'd, I'd just like to have a lobotomy and take that part of my brain out because exactly. I just want to forget that. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. There's some things I wish well, still. Well, you were on. very candid to share that, but uh, I, I know that was one of the things you were doing when you were, were near your retirement. Uh, and, I, and that surprised everybody. Uh, but it's important, I think, to hear what was going on in your mind about that work and how well you did it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also to recognize that now it's time for someone else to do that. Yeah. It, it, but all of that, there was a convergence of professional things happening, personal things happening. One of the things I did, I, I spoke to kind of a kind of a 2012 awareness of uh, discontent in my life that uh, in addition to traveling a lot, uh, I became very uh, comfortable drinking a lot as a means to deal with that. And the problem with that for me is not just the drinking, but I, being from Kentucky, I, I love bourbon and I never bought cheap bourbon. So from an expense standpoint, it's pretty wicked to uh, spend the amount of money it takes to support that habit. Uh, I, I, you know, it was at night. Um, it was a way to get through the night and not have to deal. It was, you know, any of us who live into some level of recovery know what it means to to numb out because you can't handle what's going on. Right. I did that increasingly over the years. I say that in this moment, recognizing that I know I'm not alone in that. No. And so I share that as hopefully a word of encouragement that if uh, there are those among us who still find themselves in that place, there is a path forward. That can be life-giving. And it's not just alcohol. Not just alcohol at all. Some folks, uh, it's work. And I'm probably one of those that did that. Yeah. And, you know, people will pat you on the back for uh, being a workaholic. Yeah. And it just goes back to what we had, a cult of personality. People pat you on the back and uh, suck the life right out of you. And uh, it's not good. No. It, yeah, it enables. It's an enabling thing, really. So I, for me, I, I uh, find myself in this place where I was miserable in my living. I was miserable in my work. I could not figure out what to do. I was stuck. And, you know, the, the, it's not lost on me. And, you know, I spoke to having found therapy two-plus years ago. I had referred scores of people. I did a lot of pastoral counseling in my office over the years, and I feel like I was decent at it. I knew when I was dealing with a situation that was 
beyond my capacity. And I referred scores of people to therapists and it never occurred to me that I might be the one who needs it most. So I, I am able to look back on that time through that awareness of work that I've done since to reach a place of clarity in my life and, um, right-sized feelings and that's kind of all that that was going into that but there was 2018 ish there was a lot happening and there was this you know i i don't know if you know this about me sky but a lot of people say that i internalize things mm-hmm. and is that new i've new, heard that yeah um <laughs> and that um and, and even since I my i even saw it Yes, you have. Even since my childhood, I, I mean, I've been called serious. I'm always serious. The other problem I have, which I have no control over, and it's happened all my life, is while I internalize my feelings, my face reveals what I'm internalizing. And I don't, I don't, I wish that was not the case. Because when people see a face and they assign a meaning to it that I'm trying to hide, or at least hold and process, you know, the cat's out of the bag. Right. I'm sure you may have seen that. Uh, a couple uh, times. Yeah. Yeah. Shut up. So I've that all, all of that is working and, and I find myself. Um, you can't even enjoy your internalization. Exactly. Somebody right. comes up and gives crap about it. So uh, here's, here's part of the story for me. 2018 begins with this awareness that I was about to stand down from the board. The questions of retirement had not yet even approached me yet. And I had thoughts that I might be moving from St. John's to another appointment, uh, whatever it might be. So my, as any person who lives in denial does, if you have a new thing to do, you kind of kick the can down the road of what you really need to be working on internally. So that's what I was thinking, that there will be things that can preoccupy me and that. And truthfully, for and I think it's fair to say any of us have a can have a, a rough patch in our lives or a rough season in our lives to which you might say, you know, look, get over it. You'll you'll get through this. It It's not abnormal to have a, a bad season in life. And if you're clergy, you say, well, there'll be another church. There'll be another church. So, But for me, it was clear that while I may have had that thought initially, that there, there was something far more pressing, a, um, a an inward pressure, a depression, a, um, a sense of discontent, and then ultimately what started to happen was this belief, and it, it is a belief that you are persuaded is ultimately true, was that I was irreparably broken, hmm. that there is no fixing this. This is who I am. This is who I've always been. I look it back up on that now, realizing that's not true, but my God, for a while, yeah, I was convinced it was, and you were with me through some of that. In April of uh, 2018, I went to uh, my doctor just for a checkup, and, and, and the doctor I go to, a uh, great guy, but it's, it's, uh, it's one of these practices where residents come and do the initial and then right. consult with the attending kind of thing. And, 
And across the years that I've been with him, I, you know, I've always wanted to be helpful to the resident because I know you, that's right. how you learn. Right. That's right. And, uh, the, the res, and I don't know what her name was, and, but she was only there for a rotation anyway, I'm sure. But she came in and she started her check mark questions. And I just looked at her and I said, I'm not talking to you. Go get him. Whoa. Yeah. And so he came in and looked at me, and he's one of these kind of doctors who conveys care through his words and his actions. And, you know, you feel like in the moment you're the only patient on his mm-hmm. mind. And I really think that when he's with you, you are the only patient on his mind. And we had built a rapport, and he said, what's happening? And I told him what I was living with, with my relationships and my inward stuff and all this stuff that's happening and that I've been drinking a lot as a way to deal with it. And he said, uh, well, a lot's relative. How much is a lot? lot? And I said, uh, well, I'm, I'm going through a handle every four or five days. And he goes, that's a lot. Uh, it's also very expensive. Yeah. That that ain't cheap bourbon you're drinking. That's right. So he, uh, he said, uh, here's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to test your liver today. I'm going to give you three months, but I want you to stop. And I did, uh, April 9th, 2018. And I simply because a doctor looked me in the eye and if he was just giving me prescriptive guidance, absent compassion, I probably wouldn't have done it. But I knew that he, he, he cared. And whether or not it's rational or not, it was a level of care that I wasn't feeling anywhere else. But it was a doctor who was being compassionate that really did your intervention. Pretty much. That's right. The problem, though, is that when you stop using the drug to medicate, you have to now feel your feelings that you've been numbing out. And so while I stopped drinking in May, in April, in May, I could not stay in my house anymore, and I moved out. And um, I moved to – I had accrued like a half a million Hilton points with all the travel I had done as, as board chair. And so uh, – The Hotel of Methodist Ministries. The various Hamptons uh, that I got to know well, and there's one at Walnut Grove by the Baptist Hospital – which is not too far from where the house I used to own is, but it was close enough that I could be in proximity to especially my youngest son. And I I did that for months. I have, I have friends from St. John's who took me in for a while. You know them as well, who showed me hospitality and compassion when I was really uh, struggling. Sure. And after that, my dad got sick. We were, we, so um, for about, I don't know how many months I was commuting from Jackson. Nomad. To Memphis to work. Which you were is living a nomadic stupid. life. I was. I was living some kind of life. Yeah. So how's that? Just looking back at all that right now, and you look to, how would you give yourself a score on a report card? How'd you do? Man, 
it's one day at a time still has mm-hmm. to be. So I, I, I can look back with some gratitude of some work that I've done as I'm living in that malaise. Well, I did not start therapy until like November of 2018, which is to say I found a guy to work with. Uh, I'll tell you a quick story about the first guy I went to go see. I don't remember his name, but I went in for the initial and I can't even remember who made the referral, but I, I went in and I filled out all the intake stuff and I had my meeting with him and he uh, looked it over and I'm sharing some of the stuff I was living with and feeling and all of that. And he noticed my occupation, my vocation, and he said that he wanted me to know that he feels that God has called him to work with me as a pastor. And I said, inwardly, check, please, because the things I'm going to have to deal with, what I do can't be a part of it. Right. This is not going to be pretty, some of the things I need to say and work on. But I found a a guy and a part of the the place that um, the practitioners that are a part of the place that he owns and operates. And I started therapy in late 18 and did some intensive work and was getting on the ground floor of trying to understand just how frozen I'd become emotionally and was doing some work. And at the time, early on, he was suggesting that I might consider going to treatment. And I told him all the reasons that I couldn't. Which any of us who have I'm a busy man, yeah, I'm busy. I'm important. Care, uh, I don't. Got stuff uh, to do. I, that's right. People yeah. need. Me. Uh, there's not going to be a good time for me to go. And those of us who've been to treatment look back at that and go, "Yeah, that's cute." You know, it's just you go. There's never a Aren't good time to get special. That's right. And so we come to um, to March, which was uh, a terrible month for all of us. And for me, in dealing with the death of my colleague and brother, John Kilzer, and how I touch that story, much of which uh, I'm not going to repeat because it doesn't belong only to me. So I only want to speak to the parts that were mine. That it involved John being to the place where he was in need of treatment again. I, I spent his last night in Memphis as he slept on a couch on the floor beside him. And I flew with him to Minneapolis. And I put his suitcase in the van. And I hugged him. And I told him I loved him. And that I would see him on the on the other side of this journey that he's taking, telling him what could be more redemptive in the messages that we bring of someone who has lived in recovery, who has relapsed, and relapse is common for the, those right. who are in recovery <clears throat> to get back up on his feet and do the work, and as what a witness that would be. So I felt that sense of connection with him and being very deliberately involved in his last days in Memphis and in handing him off literally to uh, the folks at Betty Ford Hazelden. And then um, 
a few days later when he died, just the sense of shock and anger and in addition to all the things that I'd been living with and carrying and trying to sort through in my life to have this happen, it triggered all manner of things. Um, The shock of his death brought back to the surface things that I had not thought about in a while because 15 years prior, my brother Jimmy died unexpectedly in the night. Um, You were absolutely in the middle of that with me, Skye. And so I thought I'd I'd kind of wrestled with all of that and put it in its place, but clearly um, unresolved trauma always comes back. I I remember two really rough phone calls from my brother saying that one of his brothers had died. And that's what went through my mind when you called me and said he's gone. And even though you hadn't said who he was and who you were talking about, yeah, I, I didn't know what to say. I know you didn't. You didn't say anything. You came down. Yeah, well, I think that's what friends do. And you but stayed with me. It's just trauma on top of trauma on top of trauma in a profession where you get phone calls like that all the time. They may not be about people that you know really well, but they're folks that you're caring for. Mm-hmm. And uh, you've done a lifetime of that. And then two lifetimes of things that people shouldn't have to go through. So I, um, we get through March, which was extraordinarily hard, and three funeral services for John. Everybody was grieving. Yeah, it was a lot. And so many communities grieving, all from different places. So, But you're in, you were in the intersection. I was in that. my, yeah. And so in addition to living with the sense of being emotionally frozen and believing that I was irreparably broken and now you have this traumatic moment, for which in the, in the, in the intensity of it, I felt like I rose to the occasion and did exactly did. what was required because that's what you do. You know? And you did you, it well. You, you did it masterfully. You were professional, yeah. and uh, people didn't think you were just a yeah. stoic SOB. That's when you right. Did you did and a great so, job. But the reality is is that once all of that is over, you crash. Lottie, Lottie freaking die. There you are. And um, I'm – the totality of the illnesses that I was living with and the reality of John's death that I lived with the thought further that somehow I was complicit in what he did, that I could have, should have said something, should have known something, could have done something to, uh, to stop what was apparently inevitable. At the time, you know, where March is within the appointment cycle, our bishop asked me what I wanted to do, and I told him, I don't think I can stay here and heal. And I meant that very much. Too much. Too many reminders, too much trauma in the place of origin where some of the trauma occurred. That's just a lot. And up until the day that appointments were announced, I thought there was some place I was going, the work that I was going to do that would have taken me completely out of the context I was in for a while. And I was, uh, it would involve being in Jackson 
and so much so that I was actually looking at apartments in Jackson and then that never came. That call never came. And, and I, if I was in the Bishop's shoes, I get it. I mean, you, it is, it is a particular trauma to a congregation to lose a spiritual leader while they're still active. I mean, it's painful enough when you lose a retired guy or gal, but to lose someone who is still active and still doing it. And, and so for then for me to have been appointed elsewhere, uh, my associate, one of the associates I had at the time had just stepped away to pursue her vocational path too. So there had been a lot of changes within the pastoral team at St. John's. And so you took another one for the church. Yeah, but what was given to me was uh, they're going to give me three months off. I was told that what was, what was really a gift for me was um, for me to think about what I needed and to tell the staff parish. And so I thought about I, there's a there's an intensive in a place just outside of Bowling Green, Kentucky, and so I'll go do that. It's two weeks. And so when I went to my staff parish to tell them that, they had already been meeting and apparently had been meeting with the superintendent as well. And they told me they wanted me to take three months, which just felt overwhelmingly gracious. And so I was at that point left with no excuse not to go to treatment. Right. And God knows I needed it. I needed it far before long before when I went. So I spent a month of those three months at um, the Life Healing Center in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And I, I went, uh, I, you know, the whole process of that is, you know, all the intake stuff that you have to do and trying to figure out how you're going to pay for it. And I'm grateful for all the help that I was given to help make that possible. And then you, it's time to go and you buy a one-way ticket. That was weird. And I it's called, different. I called you from abq once i landed and i was just a mess i like yep and you go it's like what you would expect in the movie you go down and then said and i'm gonna be off grid for a while yeah absolutely and then you go down you go down the it's you go down the escalator and there's a guy standing there with your name on a card that you have no idea who he is and he doesn't know who you are all you have in common is it's your name and he's written it on a card and he took me from Albuquerque to uh, Santa Fe, and I spent a month there doing uh, trauma work and work for depression and uh, some PTSD. That was a part of my recollection of Jimmy's death after John's. So for those of you who want to know why I missed annual conference in 2019, that's why I was in treatment. But you hadn't excused absence. I wouldn't have given up. I understand. If I had excuse or not, but that's that's where I was. And I was doing work for me that I'd never considered doing before. There was a lot about that work. And let me be clear, you, you don't. nobody goes to treatment going, man, I'm so glad I'm here. As soon as I land in Albuquerque, I'm like, man, what am I doing here? I got to get out. And you... You go, but once you get in and you get going and being a part of it, it was, you still count down the days to when you think you can get out, but you, if you can work it, you know that you're where you're supposed to be. Um, so you're, so you're sitting in, uh, New Mexico, you're in the desert southwest, you're in a treatment facility, 
Uh, it's not quite prison, but you're not going anywhere anytime soon. And you don't have your phone. And you don't have your phone. You're not allowed to text. You're and, off the grid. So and, what do you, and, so and what, you, you have to pee in a cup. And there, yeah. So you're under scrutiny. And if you're an introvert, that's a pretty much living hell. <laughs> so, uh, so what do you do when you got free time? Well, there's not a whole lot of that. It's a very structured. Um, my the program I was in was very structured. I'd have seven plus hours of therapy a day. Um, I was working along with uh, a community of about at the time it fluctuated, but roughly about thirty to thirty five people who were in their various processes of, and we were not all there for the same reasons. I care a lot about those people that we we have this singular experience in common that we all tried to get our collective shit together at the same place um, during the same time where we were supportive of one another. Some things that I take away from that experience that were helpful that I still seek to practice. Um, I'd not done intensive breath work before, diaphragmatic breath work. The therapist who led me in that, it was transformative for me. For one who internalizes, how does that stuff finally come up and out? And that was the mechanism through which, uh, almost like an exorcism, the stuff that just kind of flowed up out of me was amazingly hard. But it's hard to speak to how transformative it was thereafter. I was able to say goodbye to John. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some magic in the desert Southwest. I, I, I tell people about it. Nobody over there is religious, but everybody's spiritual. And you've got a whole lot of the native stuff going on that's in the air, in the sand there, too. The other thing for me there, though, was uh, my primary therapist, as she was coming to know who I am and what I was dealing with there and the whole the whole stuff of all of my life and talking about vocational things, um, she said, you know, you've done this a long time. Have you ever thought about doing something else? And the answer was no. I'd never given myself permission. How dare you even think such to do something other than what I've always done. And so the germ of beginning to think of retirement began in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And I tested it with mentors and friends here when I got back. But that's how it started. Just the simple question. And I I think there's something helpful for us to know that sometimes it is the simplest of questions from places you least expect it to be asked or the measure of compassion that is shown you by the person you had no anticipation you'd receive it from that allows you to see life differently. But you had to intentionally step away from most of your places to get to that place. Yeah, I had to go to a place that was completely out of my known universe for me. Or I would have stayed attached, you know, and a codependent always stays attached. So to be at a place where I'm attached to nothing but what's in front of me was the beginning of having that become uh, being healed from it. Wow. And the the methodologies that we used were uh, art. Uh, I became a fan of finger painting and finger painted You're all kidding. kinds of stuff. No, not at all. I'll show you my work when uh, okay. we get back to, like to, to the apartment. 
or Amazon delivers to these places. And so I didn't have an instrument. So I bought like a hundred dollar guitar from Amazon and that became my outlet at night. Often I, I tell you what the sunset in the desert is stunning with all the colors. Mm. And we would, uh, I'd play and I became the, the jukebox for folks to play stuff and folks would sing. And then I wrote, I've always written stuff, but I, I wrote differently and, I'm going to close with this. Yeah, you've got something written there. Well, I want to hear it. I close with this, and I, the whole point of this episode for me is to, I felt like I needed to offload some stuff for people who wondered what the hell happened to Johnny. Well, they're, they're, that's it. That's, the, that's a large part of it. And to be a source of encouragement for folks who are struggling, that there's a way. Hmm. And when you are wrapped up in your own stuff you don't believe that's true and the beginning of of a profound healing started for me in the desert we were tasked with writing things from time to time and this is one thing i wrote it's called finding and i I close with this because i want um want those of you who feel like you need there's room in you to find something that it's okay to search for it. It's okay to go to treatment. It's okay to go to therapy. Do it. Uh, Don't wait as long as I did. This is what I wrote. It's called finding. What is it to find something lost, something once possessed now beyond the range of my senses, something of my very essence. Sometimes finding is a pleasant surprise, the neatly folded $20 bill in the side pocket of a coat not worn since last season. It's the found grace note such as this that lightens a day. Sometimes finding is something I wished I'd never found, something I found out, and sometimes being found out is the sum of all fears. Finding is what I'm doing now, finding the stuff in me that prompts self-loathing And when I find it, I'm telling it to fuck off once and for all. Only then will I find who I'm becoming, who I'm meant to be. The beginning of the discovery of that long-hidden, deeply repressed joy of the boy who just wants to play. I found myself in the deserts of Santa Fe and learning to live with the person I've never allowed myself to be now. And it's not easy, but, man, I'm glad I'm doing it. I have a vial of that sand that you gave me. You surely do. And uh, it sits out in my man's shed. Uh, A lot of that I'd not heard before. And uh, now that sand means even more. I appreciate you, my friend. Love you, brother. Love you. Well, for those of you who are wondering, where's Johnny? I hope that gives some insight into what my last several years have been. It's a journey that continues. I'm still trying to discern what I'm going to be when I grow up. I have some thoughts about that. also need a job, and I keep looking for that too. So holler if you need me. Uh, And as I reflect upon, even as I've shared this story, I'm mindful of the ways that things work. That while my life has not gone the way of my expectations, one of the things I learned in treatment is that expectations are premeditated resentments. I never thought about them that way before, but as it turns out, there's something that's really true about that. And as it is, 
when I think back on it, had had the bishop appointed me elsewhere in 2019, right after John died, which is what I thought I most needed in order to heal, I wouldn't have been given the opportunity to go to treatment. I would not have been given the time. And had I moved, I'm sure I would have kicked the can of my troubles and issues down the road, not dealing with them in a healthy way. I probably wouldn't have retired when I did, too. And and the time of my choosing to retire comes with peace, even though I'm not sure yet what all I shall be. So if you're a, a Romans 8.28 kind of person, uh, there's something about what good is coming from that. Sky and I want to thank you for your support of Something to Say. We had a great response to our first episode, and we continue to, our effort is to have them come every other week. Uh, we invite you to join us and follow us on Instagram. Uh, respond to the things that get posted there by Gil. If you have ideas of episodes, uh, we also now have a, a giving mechanism where our goal is for this to be self-sustaining. And uh, Gil will show, I think, on Instagram how best that can happen. But until we meet again in two weeks' time, know that Sky and I are grateful for you. And we'll see you next time on Something to Say. Something to Say is an OAM Network podcast. Hosted by Johnny and Sky. Produced by Gil Worth. Logo and designed by the OAM Network. Available on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and theoamnetwork.com. Music courtesy of the Traveling Cokesberries. The OAM Network is an independently run podcast and live production company in Memphis, Tennessee. TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast.